This is Front Row, and I'm your host, James Whiteside, principal dancer and choreographer with American Ballet Theater and the author of Center Center. Take a seat in the front row as I discuss the creative process and the business of creativity with the world's brightest stars. Eric Winterling founded his atelier over 30 years ago, and it is one of New York City's premier custom costume studios. Working together with costume designers, he transforms their visions into one-of-a-kind costumes for stage and screen. His studio has made costumes for Wicked, Funny Girl, and Frozen on Broadway, among countless others, as well as costumes for screen, such as The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, The Gilded Age, and Respect, the Aretha Franklin biopic. Eric and I talk about beads, beads, and some more beads. He tells me about Atelier Morale, and what it takes to go from costume design sketch to screen and stage ready. This is honestly a world I don't know much about, and I loved learning the ins and outs of this mysterious industry with one of the world's best. Enjoy this episode of Front Row with my guest, Eric Winterling. Eric Winterling, welcome to Front Row. It's very nice to be here. Happy, what is it, Monday? It's a, it's a Monday after Thanksgiving. How you feeling? Well, I actually, uh, I guess I really relaxed because it's been a very difficult day. And so, uh, uh, you know, sort of playing catch up on everything. I feel similarly. I think the Monday after Thanksgiving is a really cruel, rude awakening, actually. Yeah, I think, I think they, you should start work at like <laughs> noon or something on that. Yeah, I took ballet <laughs> class this morning and I did not feel great, let me tell you. <laughs> there you go. Um, all right, so I want to dive into some questions here uh, because you are indeed in the front row and that's what we do here. All right. Ask away. Ask away, I shall. Um, so first of all, I know you moved studios very recently and I want to talk a little bit about that and what led you to move. Uh, well... What had me in the space that I was in, that I was in that space for 13 years. Uh, I think I'm 33 years in business. So that was, I had actually started my company in that very space uh, before, right? It's like a real New York story. And I, I, I ended up back there because uh, they wanted me out of the space that I was in. And I said to my business manager, do they have nothing to show us? We paid our rent on time. And... Um, uh, she said, well, let me call them and ask them. And so they basically sent me back to the space I had moved out of 12 years earlier. And, uh, but I took over the whole space. And so, um, this go round, you know, the building was built in 1905 and there was cool. never going to be heat on Sundays. There was never going to be, uh, the, the windows were always going to be drafty and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and then we were uh, had to replace the air conditioning unit. And so we found this place and they were willing to work with us in the build out. And uh, so I'm very happy here. So and where are you located now? We're on 8th Avenue uh, in the garment district. And so we're very close to our competitors and we're close to the fabric stores. It's a really nice uh, location. So uh, we're right right above the post office. Fabulous. It looks like you've moved in and you're really ready to go. There's art on the walls. This is not our first time. So we, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, I mean, and, and it wasn't like, you know, your college uh, dorm room move, you know, we moved over. I mean, it must have been 
over the course of three months, seven, eight trips, you know, of just stuff, just layers of stuff being moved over patterns, fabric, you know, uh, all sorts of things. So that is costume history on the move, really. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So what you said, you're close to your competitors. Who are your competitors? Oh, uh, places like Tricorn and, uh, let me see, Donna Langman, Sarah Timberlake, um, you know, um, who else? Uh, uh, John Christensen, you know, uh, they're all, they're all now in the neighborhood. And, and so, uh, you know, uh, it's, uh, for fittings, uh, uh, actors don't have to travel as much. And, mm. um, so, uh, and designers, uh, you know, cause usually when you have a musical or, uh, big shows they're di- it's divided up among several shops so then mm-hmm. they can just um comp- they, it's easier for them to get around i've been lucky to wear costumes made by many of the shops you just mentioned yes yeah can you tell me about the difference between calling your workshop a studio versus a shop versus whatever no i can't because i <laughs> I don't, it, you know, I mean, people call it different things. They call it an atelier. Uh, they, and, and that's my favorite uh, description of it. Uh, it's a, it's a workroom. It's a, uh-huh. uh, you know, uh, sometimes when you call it a shop, people think it's like a, a, a like a, a store where you can shop in, you know, and uh, it's not that it's a workshop. It's a, uh, and uh, a studio. I don't know. I guess, I guess it's a studio. I, 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 that, that's more like an artist studio. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know that that's, um, uh, you know, the level of creativity uh, one project requires over another. I'm not sure. So, yeah. Does it ever feel like a factory? (laughs) Well, (laughs) (laughs) maybe this Monday it does. (laughs) Never in my world. uh, But we had a a business uh, uh, advisor. And one day she said, well, just look out there. It's a factory. And I'm like, excuse me. <laughs> Deeply <is> offended. <laughs> and <laughs> so uh, the only thing I don't like is when people refer to it as a sweatshop. And because uh, 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 trust me when I tell you, no one is breaking a sweat here. So, uh, <laughs> so yeah, no, I, I, I think that that Atelier it is. Yeah. Implies, you know, bad working conditions and we don't have that. So. Good. Good. That's good to hear. (laughs) I'd like to know what you yourself like to be referred as as well. Me, I uh, call myself a costume maker, a theatrical costume maker, costumer, you know, so I don't know that I really have a title. I'm the owner of Eric Winchelling Inks. And founder. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And namesake. Yes. So we've had the fortune to work together a number of times and each time has been more magical than the last. And we... For, for my listeners out there, Eric and I met when uh, I did my very first Fire Island Dance Festival. And I was appearing in an Al Blackstone piece in which I played a very jealous, uh, murderous lover. And I, I sort of took out seven or eight gentlemen to get to the man that I wanted. And Eric designed the costumes for it. And um, I mean, there wasn't much by way of costume. I was wearing <laughs> a pair of black stretchy jeans that were rather sexy. And I still have them in my closet and pull them out for various dance numbers. They were good, right? Oh, excellent. Absolutely fantastic. And Eric, since then, has uh, realized some 
costumes for uh, some pieces that I've made. One being uh, a sort of homage to my first dance teachers, which is called Adagio 1986, which, uh, you know, they used to have an Adagio act, which is like an old timey way of saying a sort of circusy pas de deux. <laughs> and uh, I recreated some of the moves on ABT's now principles. Aaron Bell and Catherine Herlin, who is the daughter of the co-founder of the Fire Island Dance Festival. So it's like a big happy family and nepotism runs amok. <laughs> <laughs> and then the second piece that we worked on together was Mambo Rama, which Eric designed and created. And it was for a piece that I made for New York Theater Ballet in which uh, it was all Tito Puente music. And I was doing a sort of Fosse-esque Tito Puente number that was just so much fun to do. And Eric hit it out of the park, let me tell you. It was a lot of fun. It was great. I loved it. So I hope to see both of those pieces sometime in the future. You know, it's tough when you're making new work. You never know if it'll come back, but fingers crossed. Yeah. Okay, now that we've got your labels out of the way, uh, I'd like to talk about the sort of beginnings of Eric Winterling, Inc., and, you know, it's a, you said, 33-year-old company now. And I was reading that you have worked in other studios. And I'd love to know what you learned in those other workshops or ateliers. Well, um, uh, let me see. When I, uh, when I graduated college, I worked for Houston Opera. And uh, that was uh, a huge education in, uh, well, I mean, I was young. I was uh, 24. And um, I thought I really should go see an opera before I take this job because <laughs> mm. I had never actually seen one. And so yeah. I the movie of uh, La Traviata and that didn't help me at all. And, <laughs> uh, you know, I, it was a uh, it was a it was a very unusual job. It's not it, they don't really have things like that happening now. They have much more. I mean. Now you can go to school for uh, a degree in costume technology. No huh. thing like that ever existed when I uh, went to college. Each show uh, came from a different place. They weren't all original works. They were co-productions with other uh -huh. opera companies. And so, but you had a different cast. You had your chorus. You had a different set of principles. And so it was just a very, uh, it was a great learning experience. And then I, I moved to New York uh, in about 1987, 86, to be with my boyfriend. And um, uh, then I got a job at uh, uh, Terry Lynn Costumes. And um, I learned more what not to do at that job. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and what were some of those things? I'm curious. So I was there for about three years. I, I opened my company in 1990. And so, um, you know, I just, uh, I decided that it was... Uh, uh, that one day I was going to open my own company. So I might as well do it then when I was uh, 29 and, uh, you know, still had energy. I wasn't going to want to do it when I was 40. And so um, anyway, that's what I did. And I started with a single uh, sewing machine, like I say, at 20 West 20th and, um, you know, uh, slowly hired people on and, uh, you know, uh, expanded my space. Wow. I had to move out, uh, you know. So I want to enter, uh, interrupt for just a moment. So for my listeners, if you hear that sort of grumbly sound, 
That is Eric's dog, Bumpers, <laughs> snoring very loudly off camera. Yeah. Um, would you mind just sho- shoving Bumpers off a little bit? Yeah. <laughs> We're getting a little too much snore on audio. <laughs> Sorry, Bumpers. <laughs> is that better? I, I moved her over to the other side of the table. No, that's great. That's great. So, <laughs> sorry about that. I forget part of my, you know, my life, you know. you It's like white noise to you. Yes. So, once you opened your own studio, you said you had one sewing machine. And were you the only person working for yourself at that time? Um, yes. Uh, it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't for very long. Because I think the first, the first big job I got was for Shogun the Musical. I think I had like uh, 30 monks robes and, and every, and 10 dancing ninjas. And I, you know, uh, and so I had to have people work for me. I had, you know, I, I, when I put the bid in, I, you know, I assumed I would hire people. So yeah, they were part-time. I, you know, I didn't, uh, really have full-time people then. How did you find them? Well, I knew them from my previous job and, um, I guess that's the best way to say it. Yeah. I just, uh, I, I was starting to get to know people and, you know, you just call up people and, you know, they're not available, but, uh, their friend, you know, is looking for work, that, that sort of thing. And so. Cool. Is it the same way you hire people now? What's this, is the process evolved? Uh, well, actually we're getting very fancy now. We're, uh, doing, uh, ads in, uh, three different languages. Um, and, uh, <laughs> in wow. newspapers and, uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, but it, it still comes down to people. Um, we always find our best people. They, they just come in off the, uh, elevator and they say they're looking for work. Hmm. Are there positions you're looking to fill now? Um, not right now, but, uh, there will be, uh, you know, just there, we're always looking for, uh, people that, that, are um that know how to construct a garment and you know since we do theatrical costumes they they have to be willing to look at it in a different way you know uh we don't do fashion and so the finishing is not the same way well i mean you must know you know your costume might be next year worn by someone else you know Mm -hmm. and so they they might be taller shorter large, you know, smaller, bigger, you know, uh, and so the alteration points have to be, uh, more easily accomplished. And so, you know, I mean, some people get really all bent out of shape that they have to make something, you know, what they think is the wrong way. Uh, mm. <laughs> so, but it's for us, it's the right way. And how do you deal with people? Um, I don't know, sort of expressing that they would like to do it a different way or, you know, they don't agree. I mean, it's still the same. We, we still, we still have the same way of finishing. And so it's, it's like, you know, in the end, if they would rather be somewhere else, then they should just go there, you know, if, uh, but (laughs) more like if you'd rather they be somewhere else, (laughs) (laughs) but I have a lot of people that have been here for 20 years and they still aren't, you know, they aren't necessarily interested in, 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 uh, what I have to say. And so, um, (laughs) yeah. Are there specific skills you're looking to hire currently? Um, I'm always looking for uh, 
uh, you know, uh, dressmakers and uh, pattern makers. And, uh, you know, there are different levels, of different hierarchy of, um, you know, a pattern maker tends to run a team. And so you have to find someone that can not only make a pattern, you know, look at a sketch, then make a, a pattern for that dress, but direct a team in towards, towards making not only that dress, but several of those, you know, costumes. And can you tell me just, me as well as my listeners, what is the process from sketch to screen or stage? So we usually have a, a sketch. We have a meeting, and so uh, and the design is presented, and we have, um, uh, it, you know, there might be a competitive bid um, with other uh, shops, or or they just bring it to me, you know. Um, and, um, or, or like the contract is mine, like the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, you know, I was doing midges clothes, so I didn't really have to worry about them going somewhere else. You know, if, if what we're doing is, is new, the designer is new to us, we'll make a mock-up, which is like a rough draft. And so, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we, it's usually in muslin or some sort of inexpensive fabric and, uh, we have a fitting. And so the fitting is where, as my friend Jane Greenwood says, that's where the, that's where the costume is created. You know, it's, um, it's where you have the designer, you have the draper, and then you have the talent all in the same room, all together and all exchanging ideas. And that's where the magic really happens. Cause, you know, um, no matter what's on the paper, what has been discussed, what has come previous to that, the person standing there with, whatever on them says, you know, I really look better in round necks than square necks. And so, you know, and, Mm. or, or did they not tell you that this has to come off in two minutes or two seconds, you know, uh, and, uh, (laughs) or this is, you know, I'm rolling around in the dirt, you know? (laughs) Oh, um, so, so then what we do is we have that fitting, that mock-up fitting. Then I have, uh, I've used, I've made a pattern to create that mock-up. So I go and I create, uh, I correct that pattern. Then I have uh, a, an assistant who then takes the real fabric and cuts that out. Um, and then we have um, what we call the whole story. So we have me, my assistant, and the person, the uh, dressmaker at the machine uh, uh-huh. go over the whole thing. You know, what kind of zipper goes in, what kind of, and they sit down and they make it. And they just, you know, uh, and then we have another fitting. Then we do whatever notes. uh, And by that time, they've been in the rehearsal some more, the rehearsal process. So there might be more changes. Uh, Oh, it can't possibly be that long. This train's got to go. This, you know, uh, Mm. short sleeves. Um, You know, there's all sorts of things. And so uh, then then usually we finish it and we deliver it. Uh, There might be another fitting, depending on how many changes came out of the second fitting. So, and where, where do things like beading and embroidery come in? The beading's part of the initial discussion. We don't just, beads don't just happen. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately, so, you know, during the mock-up process, uh, that's when we really focus in on what the beading is and how it, excuse me, relates to what we're doing. And then in between someone correcting the pattern and then laying it out, they have to cut it out. Instead of cutting it out in dress pieces, they have to cut it out in squares. And then we frame it out. And then 
uh, over in the beating area, they, uh, they, they do whatever the design is. And so, uh, that's with tambour hook embroidery, or it might be with hot fixed stones, or it might be, um, but it, like, um, like you've seen people with an embroidery hoop that's round, yeah. this is square. So they can, and it's on, it's actually very rudimentary, um, low tech. Uh, it's a technique for hundreds of years. And so they, uh, use a tambour hook and they crochet the beads on and, uh, from the wrong side. And then, uh, and then it's cut out, uh, it's stitched together, you know, mm. beads are, um, put on so that you can put it through a, a sewing machine. Then after it's made, then the beaters go in and fill, uh, fill in this over the seams, that sort of thing. Wow. It sounds painstaking. <laughs> yeah. I don't think it's painstaking. I mean, I, no one's in pain. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> thankfully. So I've seen uh, in your, you know, atelier, I've seen the, it's sort of like a sawhorse and then the fabric is stretched over a sawhorse, like two sawhorses, and then it's upside down, correct? And then they... So, okay, so it's, uh, they're, they're just pieces of wood, slats of wood that uh-huh. have muslin uh, stapled to them. So you need four of those to make a square. And then you have C-clamps that hold that the fabric tight. Oh, wow. The fabric is pinned to those mu- the muslin and then the C-clamps hold the, the, the wooden slats. And then we sit them on sawhorses. The reason to use the wood is so that it can be, uh, the, the frame can be whatever size you want it to be. Mm-hmm. And so uh, then the sawhorses are flexible. So, uh, you know, they can be six feet apart or two feet apart. And they're open, and so that, uh, and then yes, the bees are put on the thread, and those are underneath the work. That's why we mm. do so much beading on net. It's easier to see through the fabric, yeah. And the hook, so you put the the hook is like a little tiny, almost like a a bobby pin, and it goes through the fabric. Uh-huh. So it's like a needle plus a crochet hook. So it goes through the fabric, and then you take the thread between the beads and make a loop, and then go over the length of another bead, you pick up the bead at the bottom, and make another loop. I mean, wow. it's like riding a bicycle. It's like, you know, once you learn, you know, it's, it's, you're good to go to say it's all in knowing how, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I am a fan of beads, <laughs> right? You know, like anybody. So speaking of beads, you've done many a Broadway show musical, as well as a lot for film. Uh, I mean, tr- the list is really, truly impressive. And I want to talk about a costume that you made for the film Respect, which was the Aretha Franklin film uh, starring Jennifer Hudson. And I mean, this dress is so incredible. I want to talk about what went into making that dress and if you can give me some stats on it. Okay. That dress was very far from the research. Uh, Aretha Franklin, they, the picture that they showed me was a, a very different dress and the crisscross has actually got bigger as it went to the hem. And I thought that that would be the dress that we would be doing. Mm-hmm. And instead they came up with a piece of fabric from California, uh, that was, that was already beaded. Hmm. It must've been beaded on the bias already. 
And then what we did is that whole process that we just talked about, I then we went in and overbeaded the beaded fabric. We beaded the beads. And so. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So like, uh, so we, you know, we, since the, the beads that were on it, it was like from India, you know, an, an Indian beaded fabric. They were very uh, nicely squared. And so mm. we could then uh, uh, enhance it, uh, which the heavier beads is what is all. I mean, it was like beading the whole dress. And so and then the little uh, diamonds in the center. And um, and then and then, of course, I had to make it so that it matched all the way around the plaid. And so, uh, you know, I. I never actually had a fitting on that dress. I just put it in the box. It was the last dress that we did for her. And uh, uh, I have this video. I'll send it to you. Uh, it's um, Jennifer putting it on. And there, she and Clint, who is uh, Clint Ramos, the designer, they're both standing there like this. <laughs> it was really... So that, that was uh, just some audio description here. It was Eric sort of pursing his lips. <laughs> So does that mean they were happy? They were very happy. Well, you know, that's funny you say that. I'm like, so is it okay? Yeah. Uh, You know, time goes by and there's suddenly this billboard with your dress on it. And, you know, at the corner of La Brea and, you know. (laughs) How deeply satisfying. It was, yeah. I just hung that poster up in my, uh, upstate in my, in my, in my workroom. (laughs) Oh, wait, in your upstate house? Yeah, yeah. Which you bought before the pandemic, if I'm correct. Yeah, yeah, that was just, what incredible prescience. Yeah, yeah, it was just dumb luck. We we had been looking for a house for some time, and uh, you know we we closed on it uh, October before that. Yeah. Oh so. my gosh. <laughs> okay, now I'm going to do the thing that I probably shouldn't, but I want to talk about how the pandemic affected your work. Uh huh. I guess it. I guess it changed it because suddenly there was no. Uh, theater. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, if you remember, when we shut down, the, we, we thought we were shutting down for two weeks. Yeah. You know, at that time, we had, uh, I thought that, you know, I was getting ready to go to Japan to do Frozen. And so, uh, and we, of course, were running late, and uh, we're running behind, I should say. And so, um, we took those two weeks. And so I was Basically, I had my car and I would, if you were interested in having work, uh, I would, t- I would drive work out to you, you know, in, um, and uh, so we had all of these things for Frozen Japan to collect and to put together. Um, meanwhile, as time went on, it was, uh, it wasn't until July that we had those fittings uh, and we had them on Zoom uh, with me upstate and, you know, someone in, um uh, you know, Elizabeth was in Queens and uh, David, was, you know, and then we had people. So, yeah, the day, the last day before we shut down, I was just starting on season four of Maisel. And so I, ju- I took that picture. And then come that September, we then started back on on film. And mm. so we started back on uh, Maisel and The Gilded Age. Uh, and so, um, that kept us pretty busy. And so we were, you know, had a, 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 a smaller staff and then by, when was it? I guess Broadway started back up by the end of, uh, May the following year. Did you lose a lot of craftspeople during that time? 
I didn't lose so many people. I, I, um, I lost some, but nothing will beat this past spring when I had season five of Maisel, season two of Gilded Age, and then all of these Broadway shows that just wanted me, it felt like, to do everything. And it just, it was just one thing on top of another. And I, I it was crazy. I, I, I mean, everything. I, I, I just, well, I mean, if I can say it on this platform, I mean, just right down to Beanie Feldstein quitting and me taking it personally. You know, it's like suddenly, you know, I had a whole set of uh, Fanny Bryce clothes to make. Wow. Uh, you know, um, just... Uh, a whole new set. And the unfortunate thing is I just, I had to I had to give up things. You know, I had to just go, you know, I'm sorry. I, there's just no way that I can do this. Yeah. You know, they just don't change the first, the, the dress rehearsals and they don't, <laughs> they don't. Yeah. Uh, and so... Uh, you know, you just have to be really honest and say, I'm just, I'm not going to make that date. So were you able to open your, uh, your atelier to do fittings and everything? Did you require masking for everybody? What was the sort of protocol you were working with? Well, first I started with this huge plastic mask, uh, for my initial mazel fittings. There's a a wonderful picture that Rachel took in, uh, her first fitting back and Uh. like, like done up and you know that's everything sort of lightened up um as time went on and uh-huh. uh, you know um but yeah they all they all um i mean now we're not we're not masking and fittings um i've been vaccinated five times i think and so uh i'm like just just give it to me just <laughs> yeah so i want to talk about fittings as well yes uh what is the culture that you try to achieve in fittings? Like what sort of input do you welcome? Like, do you like for people to stand super still? Do you like them to look at what you're doing? What, like what's the, the dream? Who's the dream fittee? Oh, the thing is, is that, you know, this is bespoke. And the nature of bespoke is that for the person that's wearing it to speak, <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, you know that 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 the person that uh, is wearing it, that is designing it, that is, you know, uh, I would like it this way. And so, the conversation that happens in the fitting room is very important about the style. Uh, I always say, longer, shorter, tighter, looser. That mm-hmm. uh, you know, you need to you, you need to be uh, you need to be super honest about what it is that's working and what's not working. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, now, whether or not I can do something about that, um, you know, I mean, it's fabric, it's a needle and thread, but just learned that, you know, you say, okay, so I just, uh, things that are easily adjusted is I think that, you know, my waist wants to be down here, you know, mm-hmm. um, this makes my knees, uh, look bow-legged, you know, that's when I'm just like, okay, so what am I going to do, uh, you know, without because body shaming's out. Like, I can't say, oh, well, that's just the way you're made. And (laughs) no, nothing like that. And so that's when, you know, we just talk about what are we going to do so that, uh, so that you don't feel that way, you know, you don't need something that distracts you from your performance. And so as a, you know, when, when I first started professionally, I was 18. And I remember some of my first fittings, uh, when I was with Boston Ballet, and and even when I first joined American Ballet Theater, you stand in this tiny little 
closet of a room with a curtain. And I, I remember being instructed not to move and not to look down. And there was no sort of invitation to uh, give any sort of feedback. And it was basically just to make sure that the costume for the very minor role that I was performing, uh, you know, could close on my body. And as the years went on and I, you know, became a principal dancer and had more and more costumes made for me and for my body and on my body, um, I found a voice in those fittings. Right. And I look so much better when I am open and honest with with the designer, with the you know the the craftspeople doing the fittings, and it, I don't know, it's it's not. I didn't feel invited to participate in that sort of conversation as a younger dancer and as a person, perhaps in the corps de ballet or even as a soloist. But um, now that I'm a sassy old uh, <laughs> principal dancer, I feel pretty comfortable. <laughs> right, and I mean. You know, when you're young and, you know, this is the you're the 30th person to wear this uh, Mouse King costume. You know, <laughs> I, I can imagine that the wardrobe department of Boston Ballet is not really interested. <laughs> you know, they're 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 trying to get this on stage. Uh, and rightly so. But, you know, I mean, uh, I mean, look at that beautiful Harlequin costume. You know, I mean, it just it it suited you so well. And I mean, that was definitely had to have been a, a free form open conversation. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I mean, those costumes were fabulous. I love that whole production is so chic. Yeah. Uh, as far as ballets go, do you have a favorite ballet you've worked on? Well, Harlequinade was definitely, one. we didn't work with you, but, uh, you know, I mean, I love working with uh, Robert Parziola, mm-hmm. the designer, and so um, you know, I've I I don't have a, the ballet background that a lot of people do. I have more opera and Broadway, uh, more film, but uh, I'm always uh, open to uh, you know all of that. And uh, you know, there's nutcrackers in my future. I'm 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 being told. <laughs> ah, that's exciting. Yeah. So. Um, uh, but do I have a favorite? No, not really. I mean, I uh, I liked uh, um, what's that one. Uh, Eric's looking at the art on his walls to figure it out. Love that one where you play Mr. Coffee Bean. I love that. <laughs> oh yeah, that's whipped cream. We did that very recently, actually. That's a great production as well. Uh, is it okay if I ask uh, about Michael? Yeah. Okay. Cool. Your husband, Michael. Peck works as the managing director of your studio. Yes. Uh, can you tell me what that means and what led you to work with your husband? So Michael's the money person. So, uh, you know, this is all lovely. And, you know, can you make the hem a little longer? But, you know, I mean, but he gets a paycheck every week. And uh, Michael, when uh, I met him, he didn't have a job. He had worked in uh, selling magazine pages, uh, ad pages. Um, mm. And then he uh, worked for his brother-in-law, uh, trying to uh, work with um, promotional items. And then he worked, moved into, did a career change and went into beauty and uh, worked for 
SD, uh, who worked for like Revive and Clarence and things like mm-hmm. things like that. And so those jobs are interesting that they're like, they're not really what you and I are used to. They're, they're like, they, they have a product and they're going to launch it and it's going to be really fabulous and it's going to change the world. And then all of a sudden, uh, uh, and they've gathered a team and they, um, uh, then the top person that's leading the thing goes and gets a better job. And so then they still have this and they're, so the launch isn't as great. And, and so they last for about two years. And then all of a sudden that product has run its course and, uh, they don't need that team anymore. So he, he, th- that was just my observation, you know? Yeah. Um, and so one time he was between jobs and I was like, listen, you need to come in and you need to just look at the company and decide if you want to stay and um, see where the skeletons are buried. And so, cause you know, you should just know, I, I just need you to look at it all. I had a business mm. manager um, who was very good and um, she had been with me for a long time and um, it had just all gotten very comfortable and very settled. And I was not really satisfied with the way, things were going. So I wanted him to come in and look at it. And so mm-hmm. he um, basically uh, took over and, um, you know, I'm very happy with the way things go- have gone. We wouldn't be in the space if he hadn't um, been the one to uh, uh, push that, you know, he actually uh, is in his office most of the time. I'm busy doing, doing the workroom. Um, so we don't really get into uh you know, uh, a lot of interaction during the day. Okay. What are there some challenges of working with your husband and then going home and being together still? Is it too much time? <laughs> well, I mean, it's sort of like a free form, you know, uh, you know, uh, you need to pick up this at the groceries and did you see, you know, what's your face gave notice and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, you know, you only have one life. And so, you know, it's, it's, it, it just sort of makes it easier. And, you know, the, uh, uh, the, you know, I, I'm planting six new trees and, you know, um, I, I don't know why that thing came in over budget and, you know, that, you know, it's just yeah. sort of, uh, I, it's, it's an easier way of living your life, I think. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> you know, and speaking of having an easy life at work, how do you manage uh, morale in a large atelier with many workers? Well, that's a good question. I had this wonderful uh, thing uh, last night on 60 Minutes by Anderson Cooper about how uh, the difference between dogs and wolves and how dogs have a DNA uh, uh, strain of, uh, it's not survival of the fittest, it's survival of the friendliest. And mm. uh, so, um, and they noticed that humans have that same strain and that you know that there were maybe six different species of homo sapiens you know a hundred thousand years ago and the ones that survived us that survived were the friendliest and so i've just decided that you know this is you know uh keeping the morale up is keeping people uh energized about their projects and letting them take ownership of of their creativity and uh you know it's it's a it's it's hard because everybody shares in it and, and you know people think they don't own it you know mm. and and but they do contribute a lot to it and so i have to let them do that and then um 
we have to make it so that the hours are realistic and that, you know, we don't, you know, that, you know, um, I mean, basic things that you get in a job like overtime, you know, yeah. uh, health insurance. And so those are very important to people. And, you know, we're going to have a Christmas lunch. That's very important. <laughs> no, <laughs> I don't like the Christmas events uh, generally. Like, right. sorry, I know that's a very grinchy thing to say, but I do not, I understand the necessity for morale boosting events like a Christmas party, but I, especially for the past years, we've, we've had some Zoom Christmas parties that are just oh, forget it. truly nauseating. Um, and that is, I, I don't mean to detract from the hard work that people put in to make them happen. I, I appreciate them, but I just... I did not, uh, I don't know, I'm digging myself into a hole here. All right, so I'm just going to stop. Um, regarding uh, people feeling like they're succeeding and being energized, you know, I I got some really good advice from one of my best friends when I was creating a piece in Boston Ballet. I was choreographing a very short three-and-a-half-minute dance for uh, the artistic director's 20th anniversary season gala. And I made this really punchy sort of contemporary dance with electronic music. And it was very fun and sort of sexy and, and cool. And I was really happy with how things were going. And I was just trying to come into this space with the dancers and give them some positive energy and, and a little bit of fun uh, in this literal one week that we had to put a dance together. And so you know, in my efforts to encourage people and let them know that I'm impressed with them and their work and blah, 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 I end up almost going overboard and over-complimenting and over-thanking. And my friend, who's a like truly one of my best friends, uh, and we've been friends for years, years and years, he said to me, you don't have to tell me good every time we finish. <laughs> he was, because it, it, takes away the value of of the actual compliment it's it's more of like a a mollification than an actual compliment so you know i think about that more and more as i make things and create and work with larger groups of people as opposed to very like private little creative projects yeah uh and it, it's just damn good advice yes keeping keeping spirits up and keeping people laughing that's always yeah. a, a very important part uh, that they're they're uh, they look forward to coming to work and what am I making today and you know, mm. uh, we're going to interact and you know I mean that's all very important. I mean, you have a lot of employees. How do you handle when you find their work to be shoddy? <laughs> um, well, luckily that doesn't happen a lot. You know, it, you sort of have to ramp up new people, but but sometimes. You know, like if if you if you really have to ramp up people, we have sort of like a tryout period where we just have to go. We just don't think this is going to work out. I see. But um, generally, I I try not to deal directly with with that, and um, you know, or or what we do is um, just uh, switch out projects uh, in the sense that you know it it this is not really working out right now and so we're going to just uh give this to this other person because sometimes you know um it's like with music you know um i had a music teacher once that uh you know uh 
he was playing a piece of music and, and the person, uh, uh, that was listening to it said, let, let, just get up, let me play it for you. And this is how it's supposed to sound, you know? Mm. And, uh, <laughs> they played it and it's like, oh, oh, I see. And so sometimes see, yeah. if someone is not understanding what it is that you're wanting from them, then if you, if you say, this is what it's supposed to look like when you're finished, uh, that, that's a, a learning that can be turned into a learning uh, situation and give them mm. something that's simpler or something that's not, you know, like a mock-up or, uh, you know, mm -hmm. something, something that's not, uh, as important, you know, get them off the lady dress. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's cumulative learning. It works. Uh, I mean, you've had this, this business for over three decades. How do you think you've achieved this type of longevity? Well, uh, I need to make a living. That's where I always start. <laughs> so um, uh, the phone luckily keeps ringing, and uh, no matter what they say, that you know I'm so expensive. They uh, I, I keep managing to have work and uh, mm. have more work than I than I can. Uh, but you know, I mean, I am a hard worker, and so it it, uh, it it and and I actually am quite passionate about what it is that I do, and I'm very. Uh, uh, interested in clothes and beautiful clothes and clothes that tell a story. Uh, so, mm -hmm. I mean, and, and I think that designers like to come here because I, um, I, I know, I know what they're, I know what they're saying. U usually I know the research when I, I, I look, <laughs> I, I'm like, Oh, okay. I know where this is coming from, mm -hmm. what period it is, you know, but I've been taught by the best. So, Eric, I think that's a really great place for us to wrap this up. I'd love to know where my listeners can follow your work. Uh, well, I have my Instagram page, Eric Winterling Inc. And, uh, you know, I also have a, a Facebook page. They're all the same. I, I, I can't pick and choose which, which adorable picture of my dog I can... <laughs> <laughs> well, you can follow Eric's dog and all of his work <laughs> on Instagram and Facebook at Eric Winterling, Inc. I encourage you all to do so. It is fascinating to see behind the scenes of this amazing atelier. Eric, thank you so much for joining me in the front row. <laughs> okay, take care. Great. Thanks so much, Eric. Don't forget to subscribe and review this podcast. And if you like it, share it with your friends or on social media. You can follow me on all social platforms by searching James Whiteside. My book, Center Center, a funny, sexy, sad, almost memoir, is available everywhere in all formats. Front Row uses music from the song A-Flat by Black Violin. Check out the show notes on jamesbwhiteside.com for exclusive video and audio from this podcast. Podcast.